listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Monday, coast to coast to coast. Theme of today, a new king and a new leader. What a weekend. We have a new king. And we have a new leader of the Conservative Party. And and the crowning of both, and, and let me tell you, Pierre Polyev was crowned. This was not a win. This was a crowning. So we almost have two ascensions. Charles III, of course, and Pierre Polyev. If you follow tennis, you've also got Carlos Alcaraz, who won the U.S. Open at the age of 19. And he's the youngest number one in history. So there's a bit of a crowning in sports world as well. But let's go back to King Charles and Pierre Polyev. I'm going to talk about both today, but I want to start with the news about King Charles. I was at Rideau Hall yesterday morning reporting for the special, the CTV News special on television with Omar Sachedina and the rest of the crew, and people were filing in. It was very early morning. We were there for a number of hours, and The Book of Condolences at Rideau Hall, where the Governor General resides, opens at 9 a.m. for the Book of Condolences. And I I was there, and I signed the Book of Condolences, obviously, as one would do on behalf of my family, my mother, who loves Queen Elizabeth, loves the monarchy, um, and others who might not have an opportunity to do so. And people were very emotional in this period of time, these nine or ten days leading up to September 19th which will be the funeral day, of course, have been very emotional and steeped in ceremony even today, four days after Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96 passed away at Balmoral Castle in Scotland, her oak coffin and everything about it, the royal standard that it was draped in was taken from the palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh, and of course, placed on a hearse and followed by her children, King Charles in his uniform, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew, and Prince Edward walking behind towards St. Giles Cathedral, where, of course, the coffin is now on a wooden stand. And it was interesting, on top of the coffin, there was a crown. And this is a sense of the tradition, and I think why people are so fascinated The crown was from the Scottish King James V. It was made in 1540. And these kind of gold-encrusted crowns with gems and precious stones, all from freshwater pearls from Scotland's rivers. And the new king, who has heard God save the king for the very first time, we haven't heard that, well, cannons fired in the background. We're firing, and, and, and he, I want to play you, Elsie, if we could. Um, the king, King Charles, talked about the historic importance of the moment. And, and here's, here's, here's a moment that I think we should make sure we have on the record of King Charles. As I stand before you today, I cannot help but feel the weight of history which surrounds us and which reminds us of the vital parliamentary traditions to which members of both houses 
dedicate yourselves with such personal commitment for the betterment of us all. Char- today's theme of the show will be leadership and the opportunities and threats. And we'll talk about that with Mr. Polyev in a minute, because he also ascended, as it were, to the leadership with 68%, a crushing, massive victory. But Mr. Polyev has challenges that we'll get to, but let's talk about the challenges to the king. Even in this period of time, these critical moments to establish his relationship as the king with the commonwealth and the quote-unquote realms, all these old-fashioned words. Look, we have been over this for four days that the queen is a beloved figure for her service, for her sense of duty, for her perseverance. The fact that two days before she died, she swore in yet another prime minister of the United Kingdom of England. Why? Because she clearly felt her duty was more important than her personal health issues. And she clearly had them. She was, sadly, she passed away two days later. But she fulfilled her duties and her promise of duty, which she talked about in her early 20s, for her whole life of 96 years. And people loved her for that and respected her for that. But beneath her almost planetary orbit over the world because she was somebody you looked up to like the sun, the constancy of her, the brightness of her. Underneath that, it was the accidents of the flesh. Her children and grandchildren, including, by the way, Charles, have been subjected to the fiercest criticism from the tabloids as their lives, unlike the queen's life, have been subjected to scandal and controversy and failures All too human, much like anyone else, but hardly royalty. Just our lives on a massive scale. Charles and, of course, the infamous and famous marriage to Princess Diana and then the infamous divorce, her tragic death, the affairs, the personal revelations that are beyond humiliating and degrading. I don't even want to get into Prince Andrew and the allegations against him, often referred to as the disgraced prince. And then, of course, the grandchildren and Harry and Meghan and how they've wanted out and accusations of racism. And then, of course, look, there's lots of places around the world, whether you're in parts of Ireland or India or parts of Canada, if you're an indigenous Canadian or any parts of uh, Africa, South America, the Caribbean, the colonialization, the legacy of the monarchy. is remarkable, painful. Actually, my son called me from university today, and he's taking his, like, second course in American history, early American history. And he's talked about how the Americans were fighting the Brits and the monarchy and what happened in the Caribbean and in Barbados. He said it's all connected. He was stunned. Here's a 17-year-old kid learning about this and realizing that it's not all just pomp and ceremony. The monarchy stood for something, and for many people, stood for a terrible thing. They're not, they're not sad. They, they, this is not personal about the queen, but for many people, the monarchy represents a terrible past. 
And King Charles will have to deal with that. And the legacy of colonialism, which is real. And the theft of goods, which is real. So he has challenges making the monarchy not only respected, not only relevant, but loved the way his mother was able to do. And that is nothing short of almost impossible. And she did it over 70 years on the throne and and in a remarkable 96-year life. So the the challenge for the new king to connect, I, I, I was there. I personally went out to see him. The the new king, but he wasn't yet on the throne when he visited Canada to mark the 70th anniversary of his mom's ascension uh, uh, to the throne. And and now the queen consort, Camilla, was with him. And the crowds were sparse. He was right here two blocks from me at the War Memorial, two, two, two people deep. It was a sparse crowd to see him. Now he's the king. Obviously, the crowds will be bigger. He needs to connect He needs to modernize. He needs to account for things. He needs to not only earn the respect, but make sure people associate him with the monarchy. So he's got challenges. But coming up next, what about the Conservative Party? Well, they've essentially got a new, he's got the power of a king. And I mean this because when you win with 68%, you have crushed the opposition. The members have given Pierre Polyev a mandate. What is his opportunity and what are his challenges ahead? We'll dig into that. Mr. Polyev just delivered a another speech to, to caucus to great cheers. And I can tell you, he delivered a barn burner on Saturday night. It was a superb speech. There's no way to deny that. We'll talk about Pierre Polyev and the future of the Conservatives next. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. A new king and a new leader. What a weekend. Uh, king Charles III ascends to the throne. And it's not a throne, and he didn't ascend. He worked hard for it. But Pierre Polyev may have the power of a monarch now with his iron grip on the party. His win on Saturday night, just two blocks from where I am as I was there hosting the CTV coverage, of 68-plus percent absolutely blowing out Jean Charest at 16%. Like, Jean Charest, that doesn't exist. It's sad to say, It's if you're from the Charest camp, it's humiliation. 9.6 for, for Les and Lewis, okay. Roman Babber, 5. Scott Aitchison, 1%. That says, Pierre Paul, the members have spoken. This is not a close thing. This is not Aaron O'Toole. This is not Andrew Scheer. He doesn't owe anyone anything. He doesn't owe any factions anything. He doesn't owe dairy farmers things the way Andrew Scheer did. Pierre Polyev doesn't have to pivot and pretend to be right or center or left and flip-flop around like Aaron O'Toole had to do to try to figure himself out. This is Pierre Polyev's party. He owns it. He rules it. He's got a mandate. And this is what politics needs. You need the three M's in politics. You need a mandate. And he's got it. He owns the party. You need money to run in elections. And with 600,000, 678,000 people who actually paid and signed up, they've got tens of millions of dollars. They got money. And then you need a message. 
And today at caucus, in his first speech as the new leader of the conservative party, Pierre Polyev had a message and his message is of affordability and cost of living. Right now, we have people who can't afford to pay for their kids' food. And if four in five Canadians have actually cut their diets in order to deal with the 10% year-over-year increase in food prices. Let me add an M. You need a message. You need a mandate. You need money. And then you need a mission. And his mission is to win the federal election. And this is how he's going to go about trying to do so by attacking Justin or challenging Justin Trudeau. If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister, if you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors. None. So that is the new leader. Now, what are his challenges? What is the opportunity? What is the message? Melanie Paradis is the conservative strategist, former senior staffer to Aaron O'Toole. She joins me now. Mel, always good to see you. What a night. Um, he's got the, he's got the mandate. He's got the money. He's got the, you know, he's got the message and he's got the mission. Um, what did you make of the resounding victory of Pierre Polyev? Well, keeping with your royal theme, the war of succession is finally over. We've had, this is a party that's had six leaders in seven years, if you include the interims. Right. Uh, so th- now no one can realistically look at that 68% on first ballot and think they have a reasonable shot at taking him on. Like, they just, they don't. So you're right. Um, this is his party now. He does have a, a clear mandate, and I, I would call that mandate carte blanche. He has the, the ability to write what he wants in terms of a policy agenda going forward. Uh, And I think that you're also correct that he's going to stick very closely to a narrative around the economy uh, and to affordability in particular. When I was there and I saw people unite around him and I said to one of his senior members there, I think I said to Jenny Byrne, who I spent a lot of time with, I said, Jenny, this is like the liberals in 2013. When Justin Trudeau was elected, by the way, he was people don't realize this. He had 24,000 points um, in in his leadership. This is April 14th, 2013. I remember it well. He had 80 percent of the points. And then I think Joyce Murray came in second with 10. But the liberals knew then that their war of succession was over. Right. He was replacing Bob Ray. They had had Michael Ignatieff. They had had Stefan Dion. They had walked in the political wilderness since the Chrétien Martin years. And now they had rallied around Trudeau. To me, this is the Conservatives 2013 moment. The the Liberals thought they had found the future in 2013 with Justin Trudeau. It really looks like after this long wilderness period with the Conservatives, uh, 2022, Pierre Polyev is the same feeling. I I completely agree. I I think that he did a very good job in his speech of being generous to the other candidates, especially to to Jean Charest, which was important for, for some of that party unity. Um, he, he specifically said, you know, when the nation's back was against the wall in the 95 re- referendum, you stood with courage and passion. You defended our country. We will, will forever be grateful for your work. Like he, he did a really good job of extending that olive branch. And I think people who, um, might've been on the fence were really appreciative of, of that olive branch. So I think, 
and, and anecdotally, um, so I was there as well, and, and at the after parties um, later on in the evening, there were some of Pierre's senior people made a point of going to other parties and and having conversations with, with conservative activists that perhaps worked for other teams to ensure that they knew that they were welcome. Mm. I uh, First of all, let's talk about the, the first speech, and then this morning. I'm just talking... Let, you know, I'm not a partisan. That's a hell of a speech. And I tweeted out, he spoke well. He's well practiced. All those rallies. You know, he's been a member of parliament since he was elected at the age of 24, 25 in the year 2004. Um, he, he's been a, you know, a front bencher. He's well practiced. He wears his fight. He's a happy warrior out there. He managed to mix in the personal and the political very easily. He wears his his message lightly. By the way, his wife, maybe even better speaker. She's oh, yeah. obviously she's she was ridiculously good. But that a was a, yeah. I mean, that was a compelling speech. Uh, they have launched incredibly well. Yes, I, I think they did. A, they did a great job. I think we're going to see a lot more of Anna in in the days and weeks ahead. I think the two of them as a pair. Um, is really a dynamic offering. Um, her her way of telling his story, because in his speech, he didn't actually talk about himself very much at all, which I think was very smart. He spoke primarily to and about Canadians and didn't make it about himself, aside from a few thank yous, really, to his family. Uh, he let Anna do most of the talking about his story, setting the framework, and her story as well, which I think um, are both very important. You know, she she's from Montreal. She was born in Venezuela. Her family immigrated to, to Canada. Um, he was born of a uh, teenage mother whose own, whose own mother had just died, and she gave him up to, adopt, to adoption um, to two teachers. And just like an incredible story of I, the way I, I'm seeing the framing shape up is where we used to talk about Aaron, Aaron O'Toole, I was his speechwriter, um, as, as this is a story of service. With Pierre, this is a story of being the underdog. The guy's been an underdog from birth, and he has fought and worked hard for everything that he's that he's achieved. And I think that really relates to right. a lot of Canadians. Yeah, by the way, he was uh, one of my kids is adopted, and so I, his, his he's got a very powerful narrative of adoption. Uh, his biological and adopted parents were there. His adopted parents, by the way, are teachers. I know they say they live paid. Check to paycheck. I'm not sure their circumstance. Um, it, it, it's interesting to talk about teachers like that because people always talk about teachers being so well paid um, in the conservative movement. They talk, but but he had look. I think you're right. He's got an incredibly compelling personal story. Mel, I got a minute here, and then we're going to take um, texts and calls at one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. What's your reaction to Mr. Polyev's victory? What what are his biggest opportunities and challenges? But uh, you can stay, Mel, as well. But I got thirty seconds. His biggest challenge. I mean, his biggest challenge is going to be when are the Liberals going to call the election? Ultimately, it's it's going to be up to them. I I actually think that the numbers, though, for when you look at the riding by riding data of where he sold a huge number of of membership, it's actually in ridings that are NDP held. So I think that as the parties really break, like look into how this race went down and where Pierre has a lot of strength, that the NDP in particular are going to be very nervous and will not want to break their coalition with the Liberals and go to an election. Yeah, uh, Melanie Parody, stick around if you want. You're 100% right. What Doug Ford did bringing over trade unions, right, private sector trade unions, over to the, the, the conservative side, Pierre's doing that too. We're going to take a break. one 1010 more on the Pierre Polyev victory.
As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. What will the uh, ascension of Pierre Polyev to the leadership, and I mean ascension, 68%, crushing victory. Now here's a guy that has been absolutely spot on in focusing on affordability issues and inflation, and that has been his message. And to be fair, he's nailed it, and he's been on it for a while, and it's propelled him and made the uh, issue, which then has become the issue, come into focus, and he's got his fingerprints all over it, and rightly so. But he's also got challenges. He's kind of welded on side that a, a type of populism that means, you know, hanging out with the truckers at the trucker protests and polls show that has not been popular. I, uh, you know, kind of soft peddling around anti-vaxxers. That didn't, something Doug Ford and uh, Premier Legault in Quebec, who's in an election right now, never did. Does he have a problem? His crypto, his opt-out of inflation crypto stuff, I don't think you'll ever hear him talk about that. That has been an absolute, that was boneheaded. Crypto collapsed afterwards. So he's had his share of being wrong, but he's been right on the big one. Melanie Paradis, a conservative strategist and former senior staffer, we're talking about the opportunities and the threats for Pierre Polyev. She joins us. We also are going to welcome in the president of Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl, to weigh in on all this. And we'll be taking uh, calls and texts throughout the day. You know, we've got a new king and a new leader here, so lots going on. Um, Mel and Shach, great to have you here. Shach, I'm going to go with you. Um, you. Oh, she's just calling in right now. So, Mel, I'll, I'll flip back to you. His win was remarkable. I mean, what a blowout. The party members clearly want him does he have a weakness now? If so, what is it? Um, I, look, I, I think that he managed to, so you, you laid out some of the challenges that he has ahead of him in terms of addressing some of those key issues. But he did such a great job during the leadership race of not really having to answer them because he is bypassing, and he has bypassed traditional media. Um, he, there was at least one debate that he didn't have to participate in. Uh, he found a way instead through his massive social media audience, the likes of which the conservative movement hasn't seen. Uh, We've always been in awe of what the Trudeau liberals have been able to do in terms of their social media reach. Pierre Polyev gets that. He has built um, a a massive network in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, to reach his audience directly. So he he doesn't need to, to use the traditional methods of communicating. He's he's getting straight to his audience, straight to Canadians. You're right. By the way, he didn't do a single media interview after he won. He's avoided most mainstream media for a long time. Shach Curl, president of Angus Reid, uh, massive victory. He rolls through the conservative movement, clearly wants him, Shach. Uh, what are his uh, opportunities and what are his vulnerabilities now that he's the leader of the conservative party? Shachi Curl. Hi, Evan. Hi, Melanie. So, like, look for the liberals now to get so much sharper and so much pointier about big, scary Pierre Polyev message. Uh, and that is a message that can resonate because the liberals will be able to show receipts, right? They'll be able to pull everything he said during the convoy. They'll be able to pull everything he said ever. Uh, and I just expect now that the, the sharpness of the messaging, the flintiness, the nastiness is all going to be amped even further. This will now be 
a very heavy punch-counterpunch environment. Pierre Poliev is punching. He's punching hard. He's landing blows. And he's landing blows with people who have not traditionally voted. Uh, One of the outstanding questions I really had was, would his, you know, 19 to 35-year-old male supporters actually show up and cast ballots? I think they did. Uh, These are not people who generally uh, vote uh, early, often, and every single time. So he's growing the base. He's growing the pie. And the Liberals are going to have to come up with something more than uh, the symbols and messages of hope and aspiration to really stop this. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Mel, he does have a lot of baggage, but eventually he's going to have to send a message. Will he keep, for example, the child care deal? Is he really going to defund the CBC? Is he really going to, uh, I mean, he says he'll cut the carbon tax, for example, and the price on carbon. Um, And small government. Uh, During the pandemic, he said, you know, conservatives don't believe in big programs. Does this make him vulnerable or, yeah, those are part of it, but most Canadians may not have followed that. What makes the government more vulnerable is inflation and affordability and, and, and frankly, an exhaustion with Justin Trudeau after seven, eight years. So throughout the course of the leadership race, we were pretty soft on, on policies. This was not a, a policy-heavy debate at all. It was very high level. And I think that because he's been given sort of carte blanche in, in terms of his massive sweeping mandate, uh, he gets to set the direction for the next certainly a few months. The party does have a policy convention coming up in August where members and, uh, and our EDAs or electoral districts, they'll be able to um, bring forward policy proposals and vote on what they think should be included in, in the next policy platform. Uh, I think that'll be really interesting to watch, especially since that will be one of the first opportunities for us to see in action this new cohort of 300,000 additional new members uh, who've never been involved in the party before and who I think likely have uh, a different set of policy priorities than the traditional party membership may have had. Shach, is, are people done with Justin Trudeau? Like a lot of people think, oh, he's now going to stick around because he wants to fight Pierre Polyev. But by the time this next election comes, and I don't think there's going to be one soon, you don't call it an election when inflation is moth, is like a moth eating the uh, cotton of every single person's money. So that's not going to work. But I, I don't know. They called an election in the middle of a pandemic, Evan. I mean, are, are there any rules around when you call an election now? Well, maybe there's no rules. But, but, but when inflation's at 7.6%, you've got to be a fool. That's, I, I don't say that uh, means they're, they're uh, yeah, immune I to that. I agree with you. But, yeah. but my point is... What what are the strengths for Justin Trudeau? Uh, he's going to face a wave of change plus high inflation. Uh, like, is he a liability or right now against a new face like Pierre Polyev? You know, the thing about Justin Trudeau is he's always been the Liberal Party's greatest asset and its biggest liability. The fact is, and I've been saying this for years and years, and it still holds true, today's Liberal Party remains the Justin Trudeau party. There isn't there isn't an heir apparent that that would really have both the combination of retail politics, familiarity, and the rest of it to to take on a Pierre Poitiers. So I think he's he's got to stick around. I don't actually think there's a choice uh, at the moment, and that's not a shot at any of the the would be contenders who have been speculated about, but. Really, he is, he is the most familiar person. He has shown in both in 2019 and 2021 the guy can still 
draw a crowd. He can still turn it on when needed. Will it be enough? I think that is an open question because we are seeing for the first time, frankly, since 2014-2015, a level of excitement for an opposition leader. And the last time we saw that kind of excitement, it was for Justin Trudeau. Yeah, so yeah. 2013. Um, we're just talk- so what about yeah. the center, though? Just in the minute, Shach and Mel, Shach, real quick. It, look, the liberals have tacked left. They've got this deal with the NDP. Um, many people regard Pierre Polyev as a tack to the right, leaving the center wide open. Call it the Doug Ford pragmatic center. Uh, what do you, is that a fair characterization, Shachi Curl? I, I need a bit of time to, to take a, a bit of a reflective pause on that because I really question whether the center even exists anymore. Uh, and and so let's let's actually wait for some data to see what what comes out, what tells us. But in terms of the opportunities for what I would call niche marketing in politics, 1% here within suburban communities, 1% there with, with, uh, with parents of young children. Yeah, if it comes back down to policies that are very specifically tied to dollars and cents and incentivization rather than broad policy, I think, I think both sides have some opportunities. But then again, we're, as Melanie pointed out, tacking away from policy. Now I got 10 seconds on that. What do you think? Sorry. Is the center wide open? Uh, I, honestly, I, I agree with Satchi that I think we need, we need to see the data. I think everything has changed post-pandemic. And everything that we thought that we knew and understood about Canadian, about voters, has changed. And we really need to do a deep dive. And I think that this is a great opportunity with a new leader for the party to, to understand what their new voter coalition could look like. Shachi Curl, Melon Parody. We're going to take calls on this uh, after a short break, uh, but we're also going to go to Ukraine as well. Thanks to both of you. We'll take a short break on The Big Show. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. You know, in midst all the remarkable tributes to Queen Elizabeth II, between the almost obsessional following of the funeral arrangements, between the conservative convention where we saw Pierre Polyev rack up 68% and basically take over the conservative party in a tsunami of support. Between the launch of the NFL season, hell of a week one, Tom Brady at 45, oldest quarterback to start, the U.S. Open tennis, back to school, your own life, the last kind of vestiges of the sunny days, Inflation, the most underreported story, and in my view, maybe the most significant of all stories, has been what's happened in Ukraine. And thank goodness we're seeing the remarkable Ukrainians, the brave Ukrainians, who have retaken huge parts of their country from the invading Russian forces. On the 200th day of the war, the Ukrainians in the northeast and the, actually even in the southeast have taken over two to 3,000 square kilometers, pushing the Russians back. Even Russian media has now admitted that they've had to pull back, retreat, 
let's call it what it is. They're fleeing. They're leaving equipment. They're leaving hugely relevant, expensive military equipment. They are on the run. Now, they still have deeply entrenched forces in large parts of the eastern part of the Donbass and other areas of Ukraine. But what the Ukrainians have done is reshaped the idea that there's only one way. It's a stalemate. You can't fight the Russian bear. The Russian forces are going to be there. It's inevitable that Russia will win. It is not. Russia is now losing. The Ukrainians are moving in this counteroffensive in the northeast and even in the south in a way that has shocked the Russians. Russian media, and I monitor Russian media through s- several sources, for 200 days have been saying, you know, the, the, this is the denazification special operation. We're going to, Kiev's going to fall. We're going to Ukraine. People, the only danger to our troops will be from the Ukrainian people hugging the Russians when they arrive. That's literally the kind of propaganda the Russians have been telling themselves. But even now on Russian TV, they realize they're losing. The special operation is a loser, that they're stuck in a quagmire. The question is, what's happening? How far will it go? Will Russia hit back? Lesia Vasilenko is a Ukrainian member of parliament. She joins us now uh, from Ukraine. Um, Ms. Vasilenko, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. What a moment. Oh, you're what, welcome. What, what an incredible series. Tell us, can you give Canadians idea, some sense of what the counteroffensive has done and, and what it means? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I must say a big thank you to the Ukrainian army who is uh, courageously moving uh, fast and liberating town after town. I think uh, over 40 uh, towns and villages and cities have been liberated over the last 48 hours. And of course, this this couldn't have happened without the support that we have been getting from our international partners, without all the weapons and all the ammunition that has been arriving, including from Canada. Uh, the only thing that we could wish for is that these weapons would have come earlier uh, and maybe even before uh, February when Russia attacked. Um, but anyway, we are where we are and it's not a bad position uh, on this 201st day of war because the Ukrainian military is making steadfast progress both in the northeast and the southeast of the country, uh, liberating and reinstalling the Ukrainian flags. And they are being welcomed very heartedly by the Ukrainian people. They really have. It's, uh, the, the scenes are remarkable. Lesya Vasilenko, Ukrainian member of parliament. This, this counteroffensive is moving faster than a lot of us thought, um, and clearly faster than the Russians thought. What signal is it sending about where this is going? First of all, it's sending the signal never to underestimate Ukraine, Ukrainians and the Ukrainian military. On the 24th of February, the world woke, woke up to a full-on escalation uh, by Russia, but also to the news that Ukraine will fall within 72 hours. We are nearly in the 202nd day of war and Ukraine is still standing and actually is pushing back and pushing back hard. And this counteroffensive is going as it should be and as, as it could be, given all the uh, weapons, ammunition and the training that our army has been receiving. Um, and I think that it can go even better uh, and it will be going. Oh, so there will better. be more. We'll have many good news. Yeah. You, you believe that we are expecting to see more territory return to Ukraine from the Russian invasion? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, there can be no doubt about that. And uh, the motto which all Ukrainians had is that we have to have victory. We have no plan B. We have no other Ukraine. And that's exactly where you will see uh, regaining of the territory. How do you expect Vladimir Putin to respond? I know already there he's bombed and, and, and sent missiles to knock out power in the region. There's questions about a, a nuclear power plant that in the Russian-occupied south that has been uh, now shut down, but there's concerns about its safety. How might Putin respond to this? This has been a military humiliation for him based on the propaganda he's been churning out like smoke. How, how might he respond? Uh, he might go crazy. I mean, yesterday we already saw the Kremlin send out uh, very expensive missiles to target Ukraine. And mind you, nine out of the 11 missiles sent were shot down by Ukrainian air defense forces. Um, so this just gives uh, the direction that uh, Russia has gone into panic mode. And as they are retreating, they are uh, burning everything on their way. But it's nothing new to us Ukrainians. We, we know that Russia will use anything as a weapon of war and anything to terrorize the civilian population. They've done it with food, they've done it with uh, nuclear energy, they, they've used rape as a weapon of war. We, we know it, we've been through this uh, in the last six months. Uh, so, uh, but we also know that we are uh, united enough and strong enough to withstand whatever else they throw at us. And we actually were prepared for these attacks and within the hour, all power uh, lines were restored stored and all water supplies were restored in all of the cities and the regions where, where Russia hit. So I think it was a very expensive hour for the Russians. Although they say that they can do this, there, there's no end for them, they say. There may well be, though. Um, is this the beginning? Is this a counteroffensive? I just got a minute here. Or, or, or is, this, is this going to, is the war about to escalate? Like, is, is, you, is this the, the, the uh, I guess, a moment in time for Ukraine and it's going to go back to a stalemate or is this the beginning of a big push? It's the beginning of the end of totalitarian Russia and it's the beginning of democratization. And we're about to see a new country, a new Russia emerge. And we're about to see freedom for the 145 million people. This is going to be another very long journey, but we are at the start of it. The start of the end of Putin, we can can only hope. Um, I really appreciate uh, you joining us. First of all, what your country's done, the braver, the mood must be extraordinary after 201 days of fighting. Um, your, your optimism and courage never flagged. But right now, Lesya Vasilenko, Ukrainian member of parliament, thank you. Keep up the good fight. The world is supporting you, Lesya. Thank you. We will take a short break on the Evan Solomon Show. Your call's next. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to The uh, Evan Solomon Show. I am Evan Solomon. You are, your voice matters, and the show is about you. And I want to hear from you right now. I told you the theme of the show today was a new king and a new leader. What is your reaction to Mr. Polyev's Uh, leadership win? Can he win a general election? Will he win? What is your reaction to King Charles and his ascension? Does it make you less loyal to the monarchy, just as loyal or more loyal? 
does it make you care more or less? Does it weaken or strengthen the monarchy's role in Canada? You can call me on Mr. Pauliev. We can discuss it. Ask me questions. What do you think? What do you think he's going to do? Or the king. It's a leadership day, and it's on you. Uh, and Kevin's been on the uh, the phone. Kev, you're kicking us off today at a 106 Eastern time, coast to coast to coast. What's up? Oh, well, I'd like to t- uh, touch on both kings if I can, but I'll start with Polyev in case you run out of time. I think he's going to be a great uh, opposition leader, but that's as far as he'll go. Um, even people who aren't fans, like myself, think he's a good speaker. So I wonder why... He'd rather pay fifty thousand dollars to go instead of debating, as well as not do any media. Now, the last media I heard him, I think it was a Globe reporter. He said called her or him a so-called reporter, and of course the big chant at their rallies is defund the CBC. But all I'm hearing from him today, for example, is grievances, and even some of it's not realistic. Uh, he'll he'll start off with mothers can't feed their children. Sure, that happens some, but then. Uh, flip out a statistic of four out of five Canadians have adjusted their diet, right, to create a false impression. That could mean, oh, we're going to skip the escargot and the shrimp cocktail before the surf and turf today. You know, like, that's pathetic. There's, I, I know things are, are rough, but he offers no solutions whatsoever right from the get-go. Uh, how is cutting the child tax going to fly? If you're going to cut taxes or... Uh, then what, what, what programs are you going to cut with it? So I think Canadians are going to see through him, and and it's only a loud, very vocal minority that supports him. Thir- uh, only 13% right. of Canadians did not receive a vaccine, so that's 87% that got vaccinated, at least one, 83 for double. And, um, and I also researched only 12% of Canadians, even less, own handguns, and I did listen to his leadership uh, entry spiel, and that was a huge thing. It's all about, you know, freest country ever you see, freedom, freedom, freedom. But it's it's false hope. Uh, you know, okay, once so again, Kev, so, so I got yeah. lots of people that want to jump on. I yeah, appreciate I the call. Let, let, let me just, let me answer a couple things. Sure. Um, for, um, and thanks for the call. Uh, number one, uh, can he win? That's no. for people to oh. decide. I mean, I, we certainly the the bedrock support for conservatives is thirty percent, and you can win an election on thirty five, thirty six percent. So can he grow in a time of change and high inflation? Yes, a hundred percent. So the idea that you should dismiss Pierre Polyev will never be anything but an opposition leader in my mind is completely wrong. He has every chance of winning. Uh, the Liberals are a government that are going to approach between eight, nine, ten years in government before there's an election. Uh, the center's wide open. Pierre Polyev is hammering them on real issues like affordability and inflation. So can he win 100%? And is he and is he qualified? Does he have the backing, the money, and the mission, and the message? Yes. Now, things like people are struggling. They are struggling. He's not wrong. But to the liberals' credit, 900,000 people have been lifted out of poverty That's and 300,000 children um, since they were elected in 2015. Yeah, that's true. Poverty has declined by 900,000 in that period. That That is a big deal. And it was the Canada child benefit, which, by the way, Stephen Harper had, but also because of the Trudeau government's Canada child benefit. So, look, the facts will bear out. And and so we do have to talk about the facts. Uh, whether he can win or not, though, 
Um, I actually think we should not underestimate that possibility at all. Um, George, what's up? Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Evan. Uh, Speaking as a former liberal, um, I will not support Trudeau. I mean, somebody on your panel mentioned that he's mean, Paulie's mean. Well, isn't it not mean to freeze people's bank accounts just for supporting a trucker who wanted some freedom? Is it not mean that a night, uh, I know uh, my neighbor had some sisters that wanted to come, wanted to come from Alberta for their for their sister's burial. They couldn't come because they were unvaccinated. Isn't that mean? Isn't it mean that people lose their jobs, couldn't support their families because they were kicked out for not being vaccinated? I think that's mean. The only liberal I would support as a suggestion to the Liberal Party would be a Judy Wilson-Raybould, a strong Indigenous lady who earned her position, fun baby like uh, Trudeau, and she was kicked out for trying to do the right thing. And that's the only liberal I would suggestion, as, as opposed to Collier. That's interesting. Uh, thanks for the call, first of all. I appreciate that. Um, you're raising some great questions, George, um, about... Is the pandemic response a liability for Trudeau or a liability for Polyev? Uh, certainly the, the conservatives argue it's a liability for Trudeau. But he divided Canadians. Others say the Canadians supported that because over 90% of people got a, at least one vaccination. 90% of truckers also were vaccinated. That Polyev's in the minority with that. And um, it's a vocal minority. The others will say, no, Justin Trudeau abused um, his power on that, the election, the Emergencies Act. So those are real debates. Um, I think the biggest challenge Justin Trudeau has is, one, inflation, uh, and two, exhaustion. People are tired of him. That's what happens to governments. we got another George in QC, Quebec City. What's up? Yeah, hi. I totally agree with what you said before. Um, I think uh, Pierre has the ear of the Canadians. And I think right now, uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't. So uh, basically, uh, Pierre, he, he's listening to the Canadians and he sees what, uh, what affects a lot of Canadians. Uh, as for Justin Trudeau, uh, I don't want to be a little conspiracy here, but basically he's, uh, he's working for, with the WEF and the global system, which we don't care. Basically, he's not. He's he's not. A, George, a, George, 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 you, you know me, my, my thing. Until you have any evidence of that, the, the World Economic Forum, you're not working for it. It's like I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about, uh, you know, Klaus Schwab. They're not working for that. That is a place where business people gather and politicians gather. There's no globalist agenda. Um, they have so they believe. Why no, going with group? But why? Why, why did Stephen Harper go? Let me. Why did Steve? Okay. Why is? Why did the campaign co-chair of? Pierre Polyev, John Baird go multiple times. Why did Stephen Harper go and announce uh, when he had the, the CPP going from 65 to 67? Why did he announce it at Davos? Like, why did Stephen Harper go? Is he working for the World Economic Forum? Well, you know, you know, Evans, this is the problem in our society right now is all politicians right now, they promise this, this and this. OK, so if Pierre wins the election. We'll no, but answer the question. Like, look, I, look, at I. I my point is, let's be careful when we talk about who's working for these. Those are like I think you, there's a lot of meat on the boat. Like my thing is, you got enough steak on your plate with Justin Trudeau and inflation and the economy and the, enough scandals. Go at that steak. You don't have to import kind of uh, fake meat from uh, the World Economic Forum because like you got stuff on your plate to go get them. You don't need that stuff because it ain't there. But believe me, there's enough meat on the bones to uh, to, to get a good bite in here. That's well, that's my point. Well, how come Justin Trudeau says we're going to go for the Great Reset? That's part of the WEF. For, for, it's first of all, it's the, 
it's the great reset was that. an I me, okay let okay let me that. let me talk about that George and then I'm going to take oh, I appreciate the call first of all the, he didn't Trudeau said reset the great reset was a term that the World Economic Forum used during the pandemic to to talk about making sure that people are not vulnerable it is not a conspiracy theory. Okay, and and I'm not here to, to carry water for. I've never been to Davos. I've never been to the World Economic Forum. But I've but look, when Stephen Harper and John Baird and Ed Fast, like the Harper government was there all the time. Like you have to decide. There's no great. They don't get to vote. They don't. They're not running our election system. You don't need to go down a rabbit hole if you want to gnaw off Justin Trudeau's leg over all sorts of stuff. Economic issues, scandal issues, ethical issues. You got enough here. You don't have to ride a a, a crazy unicorn into a fantasy theory about a about a business group. You just don't. Seriously, let like you got steak. Cut into it. All right, I, I love these calls. So let me take a break. We're going to London next. God save the king. Of course, here we are leading up to the uh, state funeral for Queen Elizabeth on the 19th of September today. The king and his siblings, Princess Anne, Prince uh, Edward and uh, Prince Andrew in Scotland. First at St. Giles Cathedral, then at the Scottish Parliament, where he uh, has addressed the uh, Scottish Parliament and will address it um, and then they will be making their way back to London tomorrow. And um, something weird has happened. And I've been following this and trying to get to the bottom of it. Around uh, London, you have seen people who are protesting the king and protesting the monarchy. Like there's a woman with a sign this morning. I saw the video. This is not my king. Or down with the monarchy. In front of Buckingham Palace. And they were promptly surrounded by police, like four or five police, and basically escorted out. What is that about? This is a terrible look. Protesters at the at Buckingham Palace should a hundred percent not be escorted out. Like, why would that happen? And we're just trying to figure this out to get to the bottom of it. Is this, first of all, is it true? Is it just some overzealous police officers, but it's not any police protocol. But I'd be shocked if this is happening. This would be a terrible Terrible look if indeed people are getting, I don't know, escorted out um, or arrested. I don't know. Because whatever, 
you know, apparently two people were arrested. I'll just tell you. Some 22-year-old woman outside of in Edinburgh, St. Giles Cathedral, where they are today. She, she Now, she had held up a sign that said something like the F word and then imperialism and abolish the monarchy. So she was arrested, a 22-year-old woman. I've seen the sign there. She was led away. In, apparently in connection with a breach of the peace. Apparently she's going to have to get criminal charges. Criminal charges for holding up a sign? You may disagree with it. It may be untimely. It may be rude. It is. But so what? The idea that a monarchy cannot withstand free speech is not the kind of monarchy, even a constitutional monarchy, that's not what it should stand for. The idea that someone should be able to say abolish the monarchy or F imperialism and stand outside St. Giles Cathedral, so what? Doesn't matter how solemn the occasion is, free speech does not have a time limit. Etiquette does, taste does, class does in the sense of doing, I wouldn't hold that sign up at that moment in that place, but so what? Free speech isn't about what you would do or what I would do. It's about the principle of freedom of expression. And in the monarchy, if in the name of the monarchy, you're leading people away because they're carrying a sign, they're not committing violence, they're not attacking anyone, they are expressing an opinion, then you have gone too far. And that is the very reason why monarchies were abolished in the first place and democracies were fought for. Now, I don't know. I don't know if this was an overzealous police department or not. There's another man, apparently, who was shouting, who elected King Charles? And he was arrested. I mean, I can't believe this. Somebody had a sign saying, not our king. I don't know what they're thinking. The video, the Evening Standard posted on their Twitter site of an anti-royal protester holding up a poster. I'm reading their Twitter feed saying, not my king is led away by police. There's four police surrounded a woman. What? What? Apparently, you say, not my king. The Public Order Act is such, as I am now understanding it, that people might be offended. Well, if you're, if free speech offends you and there's a law that you can't offend someone with free speech, you can't say, not my king, without the police coming, you're in the wrong place. And if the monarchy, and I don't think it does, but if they believe, if this is interpreted, that the monarchy represents any suppression of that kind of free speech, it's the wrong side of history, the wrong side of democracy. So let's be clear. Love of the queen, respect for the queen, the dignity of the queen. Her service and duty was in the service of democracy, for, of people. Not of authoritarian forces arresting people for expressing freedom of speech. If you believe that standing outside 
a cathedral, even if the queen's coffin is there, and saying down with the monarchy or not my king, is subject to arrest, you may think it's downright vulgar and rude and insensitive. It may well be. But that's not what the principles of free expression and freedom of speech are based upon. Your notion of vulgarity, your notion of insensitivity, your notion of tact and etiquette. It is tactless and painful, but it's allowable and defensible. Because it's free speech. And and if a constitutional monarchy, of which Canada is, if a constitutional monarchy stands for anything, it is that we should never be arresting anti-monarchy protesters. It's got to stand for free speech or it stands for nothing. So... So, so I, this is not happening in Canada, but as I see in the UK, the fact that people are being arrested and anti-monarchy protesters, only a few, but I've seen the videos, it's outrageous. So let's be clear here, in honoring Queen Elizabeth and in paying respects to not only her life, but the monarchy and the institution upon which she based her life and lived her life is one thing. But letting that bleed into some kind of encroachment on the freedom to protest and express ideas in a peaceful way, because somehow it's going to violate some obscure law, is outrageous. It is outrageous. And I think that's a terrible look. And if you're King Charles... Immediately, you have to say, I don't support that. He has to welcome free speech. If the monarchy has any place in the modern world, it's the place where you defend the very values of a democracy. You don't suppress them and certainly suppress speech. This is not Saudi Arabia. It's not Saudi Arabia where you can't say anything about the king. It's not Thailand. This is the United Kingdom. You want to protest peacefully? Do it. You're not getting led away by four cops because you're holding up a sign? Abolish the monarch. Come on. That undermines the solemnity, the sacred moment, and the very things that this queen, when she joined the military, and we'll talk about that next, did, which is defend freedom. And that's the monarchy's job. Now, Tim Cook, maybe the greatest historian, is going to talk about the Queen during the war. He's got an incredible new book that we're going to talk about next. So stay with us. As the story changes, we react. This is The Evan Solomon Show. You know, as we uh, talk about Queen Elizabeth II, as her coffin was in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, as she's going to be, it will be taken to London, and on the 19th there will be the state funeral. We look back over an era, 70 years, but the Queen's life of 96 years has allowed us to peek back into the changes in history. 
and, and to look back sometimes with fondness and sometimes with shock at the passage of time. And nobody's done that better through a Canadian lens, especially through the conflicts that have defined us than Tim Cook. 13 books on Canadian military history. His new book, which I have in front of me, is called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. It's out today. And when you hear the story of literally body snatchers, it'll shock you. But Tim Cook is also here to reflect upon the service of the Queen during the Second World War and the future King Charles III. Tim Cook, uh, what a, what a, first of all, congratulations on the new book, and always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks, Evan. Great to, great to be on the show. And, um, yeah, each book feels a little different, but uh, it's nice to see this one come out. Tim Cook, let's start talking about Queen Elizabeth. Um, the pictures that we always see of her as a, not only a truck driver, but as a mechanic in the Second World War, kneeling in front of this truck, um, I think she was 13 when the war broke out and 18 when she sort of start, started to serve. What was her service in the war and how did that define, maybe change her for her life? Yeah, I love that story and I love those photographs. And, you know, we've all been reflecting, I think, on her incredible service to the British Empire, the Commonwealth, uh, as our queen. Um, and, you know, Evan, you and I, we've spoken to veterans for many years, and I, I had the privilege of speaking to great war veterans, to Second World War veterans who are now average age about 95 or 96 years old, Korean War veterans, Cold War veterans, and more recently, veterans of Afghanistan. And one of the things that I've often heard uh, from veterans, especially from those of the Second World War, was how uh, Queen Elizabeth II, then princess, uh, had served, that she was one of them. Um, and often I have heard this from the 50,000 or so women, Canadian women, who served in the armed forces in our uh, Second World War conflict. And they were very proud that uh, the princess at the time um, had not taken an easy job, right? She was a driver. She was a mechanic. She got her hands dirty. And when she passed away, that was something that I just, I thought about. And, and I thought about our Canadian veterans and their connection to her uh, and how she had that um, uh, common touch when she was anything but that. But I think that service during the Second World War is perhaps just a, a slight glimpse or an indication of mm. that. She, she also, by the way, uh, took military history and, and her role very seriously. She, she talked much about the military and, and uh, it defined much of her reign, of course, the, the, the various conflicts like the Cold War, the various wars, the Falkland Wars, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and then, of course, her, her children and great-grandchildren all served. Yeah, this is part of part of the monarchy. It is service in, in multiple and, and many ways, but including military service. And we can remember when Harry, I think, Prince Harry, was in Afghanistan, there was great fear that he might be killed, uh, as is always the possibility for, for our men and women who go in harm's way. Uh, it extends even back to the Great War, where the Prince of Wales, for a brief period in late 1918, later to be King Edward VIII, he served with the Canadian Corps. And uh, there are some wonderful pictures a very boyish-looking uh, Prince of Wales with the Canadians, with Sir Arthur Currie, our Canadian general. And again, there was a lot of worry that um, that he would be wounded or perhaps, in the worst case, uh, killed. So that service, which continues, um, is so integral, I would argue, to um, that service uh, mm -hmm. of the monarchy. Well, of course, and, and Queen Elizabeth's husband, Prince Philip, he also served. What, what, how important is that military aspect to the new king, Charles III? Well, he, he has served, of course. I, I think it's absolutely integral. He is uh, honorary colonel of, of many regiments. Um, 
and there's a bearing, there's a presence there. There is, as you also say, I think an understanding of our history. And um, although I'm a military historian, and I wouldn't reduce all of Canadian history or British history to military history, you, you simply can't understand the history of our country and our development without some sense of, of how war has shaped us. I think of the two world wars profoundly changing us, the Cold War, the, the wars in, in, of um, uh, post 9 11. Um, I just think of uh, in Ottawa, the Books of Remembrance, where there are more than 115,000 Canadians listed there who have died in service of the country. And I think um, all of that uh, reminds us, and now in the case of King Charles III, uh, of the importance of understanding the past. Um, and I think he understands his uh, crucial role in this larger realm of, of war and conflict and hopefully the search for peace. Uh, Tim Cook, author of 13 books. Your new book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and Struggle for Survival in the Great War, is out today. Now, you know, Queen Elizabeth was born after this, the First World War, but in the wake of it, right, that's the generation uh, that thought that was the war to end all wars. Of course, they were sadly mistaken, and then the Great War happens and wars have continued again. But to tell us about this book, because this is a book about a medical history of the war, and this dovetails with another moment in the present, not just not just the monarchy, but the pandemic. And it's like we're living through a mirrored times here. Talk about that. Yeah, Evan, uh, I began to write this book in April of 2020, and of course we were deep in, in the pandemic at that point. I, I think we all hoped it would be over in a couple of months. Um, and I I was thinking at the time about the 1918-1919 pandemic that swept around the world, that killed 55,000 Canadians, 55,000, killed 50 million worldwide. And I, at the time, we were all grasping for historical analogies of what we were going through, the fear the lockdown, um, the unprecedented um, state intervention in the lives of uh, Canadians and around the world. And there was really only the two world wars, but the pandemic was a part of that. And and that that's what started the book, of course, the, the medical doctors and nurses that I write about in Lifesavers and Body Snatchers were, were trying to deal with that virus um, uh, unsuccessfully, I should add. And, and how did they? Was, it, was there the same kind of... Um polarizing impact it had that we see today? No, uh, it doesn't appear to be, but they didn't have a lot of success. In fact, they thought it was a bacteria at the time. Uh, they instigated some what we would call social distancing now and some masks, but they really didn't have much to treat the those who came down with the virus, part of the reason why it was so deadly at the time. Um, but it's part of a larger story that I talk about in the book on preventative medical care. And again, as you're saying, the, the present seeping into the past or the past bleeding into the present, we, we were talking about that and continue to talk about that, the obligations and the necessity of preventative care. And the doctors um, during the war, uh, they helped to ensure that the Canadian Expeditionary Force, our fighting force overseas, of which the fighting arm was the Canadian Corps, didn't dissolve into a mob of diseased soldiers. And, and they probably should have, right? We know the trenches of the Western Front, the uh, incredible artillery bombardments that shattered bodies and mines, machine gun fire, chemical weapons, the introduction of tanks, and all in this uh, horrifically dirty, 
environment. Um, disease should have run wild because disease had killed almost every army uh, up to that point in history, long sieges. They are, uh, disease is the great killer, viruses and bacteria, but that wasn't the case during the First World War because of the, the incredible work and care of Canadian doctors and nurses. Okay. Well, now we get to a point that is not just an example of how incredible and brave and remarkable the men and women who worked to save our soldiers were. And Tim Cook is breaking a, a story here, and we're going to take a break. But he, the book is called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. And you might think, what do you mean body snatchers? I'm going to just tease what we're going to talk about, because Tim Cook, for the first time in history, ex- uncovers a story of harvesting of human body parts. You heard me right, folks. Harvesting human body parts in medical units behind the lines of the First World War. He's been investigating this for a decade, transporting lungs, bones, brains, and organs to the Royal College of Surgeons. Body parts removed from the dead. Why did this happen? Tim Cook is going to unveil this shocking story next and why it's so important. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Private William Gerard Arthrell of the 25th Battalion was shot through the head on March 25th, 1916, while serving in the trenches of the Western Front. The bullet, he stayed alive for 13 hours. bullet entered his brains, but when he was buried... The young man's bullet-furrowed brain had been removed as a prized pathological sample. You might be thinking, what am I talking about? I'm reading from Tim Cook's new book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. What you may be shocked to know is that on the battlefield, they were harvesting body parts from fallen Canadian soldiers and putting them in museums, and they weren't even hiding it. In fact, they were displaying the body parts in Hamilton, Ontario for other doctors and pathologists and writing stories about them. There was no shame in this. They were were harvesting body parts. Tim Cook wrote the book and he's with us now. This is shocking to me. Tell me why. What was was this? When did you first hear about this? And and what was going on, the the harvesting of human body parts uh, behind the lines? Yeah, Evan, it is shocking, and it's a story I've been trying to run to ground for about 10 years, and I know you as a journalist, you have a number of stories I'm sure that you've been tracking as well. For me, I came across a couple of stray references about 10 years ago about autopsies conducted behind the lines, autopsies in hospitals by Canadian doctors on killed Canadian soldiers in the First World War. I thought, that, that's interesting. I didn't know that had happened. I've written a lot of books on the First World War. I thought, well, I'd better find out more about this. And I began to look through the National Archives, the secret records there, and I couldn't find anything. And I, I went back. I wrote other books, my book on Vimy, my book, The Secret History of Soldiers, my book we talked about two years ago, uh, The Fight for History. Each time I would research for those books, I would go back to the National Archives, researching in the files, but looking for these autopsy files, and I finally found them. 
and they revealed the shocking story that Canadian doctors were part of an imperial or British program to not only do autopsies, but then to extract the body parts. And as you mentioned at the top there, the, the brains, um, the, the lungs that had been damaged by mustard gas, spines that had been severed by shrapnel, um, uh, legs that had been uh, shattered beyond belief. And, and that, when the soldier died, the doctors would uh, literally take out the bones and reconstruct them. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it. Hard, there's pictures in your book, like a human lung with a piece of shrapnel piercing it, a human yeah. heart. Like, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, and I just, I, I kept thinking, how could we have been doing this to Canadian soldiers? How could I not know about it? I've been studying the Great War for 25 years, but it's there in the book. I found the files. There's photographs. There are uh, drawings of the pathological samples, as they called them. And it really shook my confidence because I, this is the war where we had talked about the sacred fallen. This is the war where Canadians were fighting for king and country. They were fighting to liberate France and Belgium. But um, when they signed up, um, their bodies were owned by the state. And that extended, as I have now determined in my new book, to after death, where they were continue, expected to continue to serve after death. Our glorious dead, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep through po- though poppies grow in Flanders' field. That is how we think about honoring the dead. No one thought that honoring the dead meant harvesting their body parts. No, you're exactly right. And the right, families John. never knew. The fa- God forbid the families then knew that, oh, um, your son has been killed and we've secretly harvested his body parts. That, that's right. And that's... Those were the questions that were going through my head as I was reading the files and trying to make sense of this and situating it within the time. And, of course, the, the first part of the book, as in Lifesavers, it's about the care of soldiers and the evolution of care, surgical care, blood transfusions, the use of x-rays, learning from the dead. But I never thought that it would extend to the harvesting of these body parts, putting them in museums, and then sending them back to Canada after the war. 799 body parts sent to McGill University, the premier medical university at the time, and probably still to this day. Um, And they were put on display, as you said. And so this was not a secret, although it wasn't well known, I think. But even that was shocking to me, that Canadian body parts, British soldier body parts, because they were mixed up, came back to Canada in the early 1920s. This is the time when we're building thousands of memorials across this country to the fallen, to the 66,000 dead from the war, where we begin to build Vimy, the Vimy Memorial, and the Peace Tower and others. And yet we have this contradiction where we have soldiers' body parts that are here to be studied by medical students. And by the way, everyone, again, no secret, Robert Borden, as you write, the Prime Minister, toured them. I mean, he saw them. They, what were they using them for? What was the purpose here? You're right. Borden saw them. I I just couldn't believe that. Um, There's an order in council devoting money to this so that they could be catalogued. They were meant to be teaching specimens. They were meant to teach the next generation. And as you said at the top, this was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and lest we forget. But it really, I I just, I can't square that with the harvesting of body parts, uh, not telling the next of kin, um, and then uh, putting them on display for, uh, in effect, there was a newspaper account in Hamilton which said that thousands of uh, Canadians lined up to gawk, to gawk at these body parts. Mm. And so they were part of a teaching 
uh, curriculum at the time. But there's a really interesting element. In 1922, um, as, as we're building memorials across the country, and that's the year where uh, Walter Allward goes overseas to begin work on the Vimy Memorial, the Department of National Defense, or what would become DND, I think realizes it has a problem. And you can see that in the files, and they realize they should not have these body parts. They do not want them. They were supposed to be for a medical museum that was never built in Ottawa. And they they say to McGill, you hold on to these things. And in fact, they stay at McGill University for the next 30 years. There's one more element here in the minute I've got. I'm speaking to Tim Cook, author of this remarkable new book that does um, uncovers absolutely new and shattering history, lifesavers and body snatchers. Um, you just write something personal. I want people to know, and Tim, you and I have spoken about this. Um, I, you said, I want to thank the doctors and nurses who worked together to save my life from cancer. I went through multiple rounds of treatment. You write radiation, chemotherapy, stem cell before the cancer was destroyed. Um, and you said, during all the time I was at the Ottawa hospital, I was surprised to discover how doctors read military history. The history of this book is really the foundations of the medicine that saved your life as well, Tim. It is, yeah. And, and Evan, uh, I've been through cancer, and uh, sad to say I'm fighting cancer again. And um, ten years ago when I was passing through my first round of cancer, I, I was just amazed at the nurses and the doctors and not only the incredible care, but just how they understood their history. They understood their place in history. And, uh, you know, I would talk to oncologists who would tell me stories that they had encountered. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book one day um, and maybe share that with the doctor? So that that is one of the reasons why I wrote this at, at one point, to, to understand um, those doctors and nurses who served over 100 years ago, how they brought back the lessons of war and how they really helped to save the lives of so many generations of Canadians. Uh, Tim Cook, uh, author of Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, a remarkable new book. Good luck to it. And your fight continues, my good friend. Um, I've learned more from you than from any historian. I I thank you. We love having you on the program. Take good care, my friend. Congratulations on the book. That that does it for our big show today. We'll be back tomorrow. That's Tim Cook.